0: Well, hi everyone. Natalie and I are back to do a wrap on season 3 today. And if you haven't had a chance to check out one of the episodes we produced together over the summer, maybe this will be a reminder to go back and listen. I'll start by saying this has been one of the most thoughtful set of episodes yet. Full of ideas and concepts to stew on and then act on and Most of all, Natalie, I have just loved sharing this space with you. And I love how much you drew out from our guests in this process.
1: Well, it's been great to have the opportunity to spend time with really smart people. Um, Smart people who are smart in the head, but also smart in the heart. Sometimes those two things don't go so well together, and I think we found a lot of folks who speak well to that. So I've really enjoyed the opportunity to get to think with them and spend that time with them, and also with you. Because in all of this, I think I've learned a lot, um, and I have been provoked to think about some new and different ways of approaching the work that I do in the world and the way that I even view the work of other people.
0: For those of you who need a quick reminder on our season three theme, we use the summer series to dig into how COVID-19 changed how we are together, right? How we are in relationship with one another, how it felt to be returning to work and school, and then only then to have the Delta variant spring up and have the conversation start all over again. And you know what feels really clear, Natalie, is as we're sitting here in the end of August, coming into the start of a new school year again that we are still so far from out of the woods on this, right? And we're starting to see all of the lasting effects that it is having on our mental health, our physical health, and what you know better than, than any of us here, our public health. And, and curious what, what you're thinking now in this moment where we are.
1: I think that we are seeing people act out and engage in behaviors that are disheartening and alarming um, partly as a manifestation of what we have all had to sacrifice to some degree during the pandemic. I think also the culture wars that have been stoked for years have certainly bubbled to the surface and it's not over yet. At the same time, and I have to every single day remind myself why I remain hopeful, I see these moments of people standing up Um, in the face of great opposition to make decisions and to support policy that will protect and promote and preserve and defend the public's health. And, And that's just remarkable. Because the thing is, public health is not just about public health departments. It's not just about the government. It's not just about medical or healthcare professionals. Each of us plays a role in the production of the public's health. And so I was watching a video of a dad at a uh, community meeting yesterday, and he stepped forward to talk about the things that he thought were important, and even about the issue of masking. And he, in that moment, was a part of our public health workforce, so to speak. He was making the case for those things that will protect the lives, the health, and the well-being of children, of teachers, of administrators, of the entire community. And so I continue to maintain hope, because in this moment where public health has struggled um, at the hands of many attacks, right, I think we are also seeing it has created a visibility and a deep appreciation by people who before didn't have any idea what public health was. And
0: that speaks so much to what we set out to do together in this series, right? We talked to people who were journalists, we talked to people, certainly we talked to a few who consider themselves in public health, but the majority of people we spoke to do not consider themselves working in public health, but see how their work is connected to the broader public health. So so let's do a a rewind here. Let's play back some of these episodes. Um, First, let's start from the the bottom up. So Alicia Bell, director of Media 2070, she's focusing on media reparations. She's focused on the role that media has played in anti-Black racism and harm and what I loved and what has stuck with me from this conversation from uh, that we had with Alicia is she talked about how much media creates culture, right? That we know it shapes perception, it shapes public opinion, and that if we want to see change tied to our, our public health, tied to our new system, tied to our society in general, if we want to see large-scale culture change we have to start first by addressing it in the media. And that's something you have talked about so many times over the years, and it really, really came through in this really powerful conversation with Alicia.
1: Well, I mean, if you think about it, what we did with regard to smoking in this country was so connected and tied to the media. And so the movement from the early 70s 70s until now um, to get people to stop smoking um, was about advertising campaigns. It was about agreements about the placement of people actually smoking in television and in movies. Um, It was about creating a different narrative about this thing that is smoking, right? And so I think the same thing certainly applies to the public's health and the way that media plays a role in curating perceptions and curating conversations. Right. Right. Right? Because like a lot of times it's it's the article, it's the soundbite, it's the, the the clip that someone sees that becomes the impetus for a conversation they wouldn't have had otherwise. That's a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility that sits with our media.
0: We're gonna talk about Mia Birdsong in a minute, who's just amazing and I loved that episode. But something she talked about was how we show up in community. And what Alicia did, the last thing I'll say on Alicia is she talked about how we are in relationship with one another and specifically how we as residents are in relationship with our local media outlets. And so that, again, it's this importance of not telling stories for, but how we are in community with and in relationship with one another. Next, going back, Andre Banks. So staying on this, you know, relationship with the media This, I thought, was such an interesting conversation because he talked about the challenges and the harms that are showing up in social platforms, right? The harms that social platforms have caused in targeting marginalized groups and largely through misinformation. So for those of you who don't remember, Andre Banks, he's the founder of AB Partners. He's one of the the um, founders behind the Win Black Palante campaign, and really talked a lot about how Black and Latinx voters, um, in particular, continue to be targeted across the era and of mis and disinformation. This one raised some really important conversations between the two of us, as well as broadly with our audience. And curious, what stuck with you on this one?
1: I think this idea of the lens that we, the lens of analysis that we actually bring. Um, When we're thinking about things like social media and the responsibility and the accountability that comes with our participation. Mm -hmm. And so that, for me, is a really important component. And I think to really begin to question our own assumptions about how and why people engage in those platforms, the impact of that, their readiness, and what that really means. So I think there is a lot more conversation that we can have about how Black and Latino communities, how people of color in general, um, are often targeted for disinformation and what we can then do to counteract that with real information.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And how we hold those platforms, the the Facebooks of the world, accountable to the transparency that we as a public should have, right, in terms of how our data is being used and targeted sometimes against us, sometimes to reinforce those harms. Mia Bird's song is up. Um, so she was just incredible. This one stuck with me on so many levels. Continue to continues to to stew. I continue stewing a lot about this one. Um, uh, I've got a few thoughts here. Let me ask you first. Are you ready to share what your take was on Mia?
1: Um, mind blown, but I'll let you go first. (laughs) You go first.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I talked about her as this deep thought provoker, right? Like she didn't just introduce ideas. She like really introduced ideas and the one that stuck with me and continues to just that i'm like thinking and thinking and thinking on it and don't want to let it go is this idea of how we create a new kind of white culture right? A white culture that really can break uh, the kind of society that we have found ourselves in, but it must start first by having a new kind of white culture that's introduced. That I thought was so important and powerful, and would hope that folks go back and listen to her talk about that, Um, which actually she didn't introduce until the end, but I thought was so powerful. And then the other piece that we've really stuck in on and, and honed in on, I should say, with Mia was the difference between independence and interdependence. And Again, it comes back to a lot of these other themes, how we are in relationship with one another, supporting one another, not in it for ourselves mentality, which unfortunately is is very, um, uh, so connected to America, right? To American ideals.
1: I can tell you that in meeting Mia and spending time with her, I felt like I met my sister from another mister. Mm. Um, Just, you know, like we were having some kind of a Vulcan mind meld as she was speaking, because this idea of relationship, interdependence, and the importance of it is so critical to what we see in society, and the lack of interdependence and how it factors into the inequities that we see. And so I think that, for me, resonated deeply and was very affirming. I, I was really happy to hear her say that, and to say it in the way that she said it. So I think it's important for people to hear how she talked about it. The other piece about whiteness and redefining whiteness, I think, is critical because in my conversations with white people who seek to be allies, advocates, activists, whatever, however they want to define themselves, um, but who really want to fight against racism and move towards equity, I ask them to define whiteness, and 99% of what they say is negative. So if that's the case, and that's that's what they believed is, is true, then there's an, a real opportunity there for white people to have that difficult conversation to say, how do we want to define whiteness moving forward? It's the greatest
0: call to action that came out of this series. A similar theme here. We'll pull from Mia Birdsong talking about how we show up in community to making links between community and public health. And that link reminds me of our conversation with two researchers, two academics, Emily and Todd, and they talked so much, I should say Emily Howell and Todd Newman, um, but they talked so much about how the pandemic exposed this connection between public health and our individual lives, and that our ability to function is actually contingent upon our collective health. And so I thought there was a good reminder in this conversation about how research is done. How bias enters into who we are um, seeking information from, who we are setting up as sources and experts, how we are building trust in communities. Um, this idea that the, um, the person in the white coat isn't always going to be the only one that needs to be delivering that message, but it needs to be a community, um, a community message. So carry us on this
1: one. What stuck with you from Emily Howell and Todd Newman? I think this idea of... Pre-COVID, to some degree, a lack of understanding about what is public health, a flawed understanding of what public health is in the midst of the pandemic, and the opportunity to shift and change Belief and understanding about what the public's health is and what public health is moving forward, um, and in order to do that, the messenger and the message really matters. And if we want people to then engage actively as participants, as decision makers, as power brokers in this thing where we're pro- we're, we're actually producing health, we have to shift and change the way that we're approaching all of that. And so they they really did leave me stewing on what does that look like moving forward, and how do we connect. Public health to other aspects of life that are really important to people so that they understand that it all goes together and you can't have one without the other.
0: One of those aspects of public health is philanthropy, right? How dollars are funneled in between organizations and community, the barriers that exist in that process. And that was the conversation we had with Yada Peng, uh, who is the founder and, and CEO of Just Fund. And uh, Fund has a really unique platform, right? It's a nonprofit grant making platform that seeks to address and disrupt some of the challenges that we know exist inside philanthropy, which quite honestly go right back to what we talked about with Mia the whiteness that's inside, embedded inside the system of philanthropy, the white supremacist uh, norms that are embedded inside that philanthropy, and how communities of color and Often, the most underrepresented groups are excluded from traditional philanthropy. So she's working to upend that. And this, I thought, was really interesting, too, that she talked about how there's this widespread misconception that when you have access to wealth, you know, when you have wealth, you are somehow more knowledgeable about issues on the ground, and yet how how not true that is. So I'll pause there. Curious what stuck with you from our conversation
1: with Yada. It was funny. It was almost like a hum underneath the conversation that really was about ego. It's it's a thing, it stands out for me. And it has to do with the ego of philanthropy. And what do we need to do to really be honest about that and to shine a light on it so that there's a level of awareness and accountability? Because philanthropy has too much power to not know and to not see. And in order to be successful, At doing the work of philanthropy in a way that allows and and supports communities to determine their own destiny, it requires a type of humility that is regularly absent from philanthropy.
0: Yeah, that is so, so true. Yeah, And there is so much more that needs to be uncovered and redefined about how we think about philanthropy if we are going to get to the root of those problems. All right, we've got two left. Our first two episodes: Tina Rosenberg, and then we'll go to Linda Villarosa. So, Tina, I want to swing back to the role of media because this was certainly a theme we talked about a lot in this season. Um, but this conversation with Tina focused on um, the possibility of changing the way we report to the world, and that the majority of mainstream news coverage has the tendency to focus on problems. Right, and there's there's a lot of problems we know to focus on. But Solutions Journalism Network, which is the organization that Tina runs, they have focused on and are in the process, actually, focused on reframing journalism to an asset based model. And if you recall, and and the audience recalls, she talked about her work with Trabian Shorters, who really introduced this idea of asset based framing. This is something that we've actually since this episode have built a practice inside Mission Partners to ensure that every member of our team, even at the earliest level of their career and stage is focused on an asset-based frame, what that means to be able to focus on aspiration first, problem, problems of the system second. So there was a lot that stuck with me about this one. Let me pause and see what stuck with you about it.
1: Well, once I got over sort of my fangirl moment, (laughs) uh, (laughs) to be able to engage in the conversation, I think to understand the power of language Because this whole thing about asset-based really has to do with how we choose to use language in the way that we are telling stories and how we then take responsibility for the opportunities that we create with that or the barriers that we create with that. And I would like to believe that people can be as compelled to participate with media by things that are asset-based even more so than the way that media has traditionally been. actually think it can be compelling. I actually think it can be engaging. I actually think it can be uplifting. I actually think it could be solutions focused. And so, um, talking to Tina really helped me to have some hope. And I think, um, you know, we have to be re-socialized. It's easy to watch a train wreck. It's easy to turn on the TV and see whose house burned down, right? Um, and to be sort of gobsmacked and awestruck by that. But I don't know that that's making the world a better place necessarily. Wouldn't it be nice to, you know, turn on the TV or to read something that is compelling in a way that shows me how I can show up in society and make a difference?
0: Yeah. And I'm very glad that folks like Tina Rosenberg and Solutions Journalism Network know and are working with the folks like Alicia Bell and Media 2070 because that's what's going to take, right? We need this collective action and collective impact. All right, and then that brings us to the last recap, though, the first episode, and what a powerful first episode it was with Linda Villarosa, where I admit this was my fangirl moment, still one of the most powerful conversations for me. She brought us inside her New York Times Magazine cover story. She brought us inside her own personal experiences growing up in Chicago, to show the power of public health on individual lives. And um, there's a saying that Linda shared inside this conversation that when white folks catch a cold, black folks get pneumonia. And it's often shared in the context of economic health. But how resonant that was in the time of COVID, right? How, How important it is to think about the disparities of how individuals and communities and families have experienced the impact of COVID.
1: This is a great time to to have a conversation with Linda, given the inequities in exposure to COVID, um, the inequities in the way people have experienced access to care for COVID, the inequities in the way that um, Black people have experienced access to vaccination. um, It it runs the gamut. The entire continuum related to COVID has been experienced inequitably by Black people, um, not because Black people are broken. And I I need to make sure that we're really clear about that. I think sometimes when we see health inequities, when we see differences in experiences of health, we can default to thinking that there must be something wrong with the person or with the population or the people. But in fact, if this, the, the conditions and circumstances don't support health, well-being, and quality of life, as she talked about with her own story, right, um, then what else can we expect to have happened? And so I think she's a prime example of the importance of storytelling as a part of public health narrative in a way that is so impactful and engaging, but also so that people can see their own lives in it. That it's not just about those people, but it's about all of us. And yeah, I, I would reinforce that. I mean, just how, no, it is not
0: Black people are broken. It is systems created white by white people are broken. And, you know, the most segregated group are white people. They have segregated themselves to create the systems that we now have. And and how much. We uncovered and scratched surfaces on a lot of things in this, in this season, but how much needs to be rebuilt and reset. So here we are. We are at the end. We set out to document this season of what we called perspective-shifting conversations. We wanted to touch on faith. We wanted to touch on media. We wanted to touch on the economy, the role of philanthropy. Holy moly, Natalie, we took on a lot. These were deep, weighty conversations, and yet somehow through it all, I just enjoyed it so much. I enjoyed this time with you of this time of learning and exploration and growth. And we started by saying, you know, these conversations are the writing on the wall, right? We, as a society, we, we never chose to see what was always right in front of us. And so I appreciate you so much helping us navigate these conversations this season and, and, um, how much we were able to dig in together together.
1: Well, first, thank you so much for thinking to include me and in bringing me along for the ride. Um, it was a wonderful learning experience, but also just a wonderful experience um, intellectually and emotionally and Really, an opportunity for me to even further refine my lens for how I view the world, and that's really important, certainly for the work that I do. And so, you were a, a and have been a phenomenal partner prior to this, but being able to do this in partnership with you is what made it more special for me. And by you opening your network and your circle, I got to meet some really great people who I probably might not have encountered for years or if ever. So, I, I express deep appreciation to you and to them for being my teachers. Um, It's nice to be able to be in a situation where I can listen and learn.
0: Well, much love to you and to all of our guests from this season. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope this prompts you to go back and listen to some of the episodes that we covered. And we'll see you next time on Mission Forward.